minds with the chip inside I can link and digitize that which prior to this was higher than science could ever devise This is a neural interface, we're gonna stick it in your face Till it in your brain and interlace There's an arms war on and we're gonna win the race Leave everything a race, bring the base Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Now, this is a special edition of DMP Tonight, where we're going to share a recording of a talk at the previous DEF CON Biohacking Village. Now, we're sharing this as a recap of great information that was presented and as a reminder that this same team behind DCBHV will be putting on another edition of the DEF CON Biohacking Village on August 9th through 12th, 2018 in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, this year's a little bit different. DEF CON will not only be at Caesars Palace, but also half of it will be at Flamingo uh, Casino and Resort right across the street. So for more information about the DEF CON Biohacking Village, you'll need to go to their new website, which is villageb.io, or also you can think of it as Village Bio and be able to see all the new information there for this year, as well as key thing, today is June 22nd, 2018, and that means tonight, midnight, is the last, is the deadline for submitting a call for papers. So go there and submit your idea for a talk or workshop, etc for review and get some feedback on it. Plus, if you're interested in sponsoring the work that the DEF CON Biohacking Village is doing, you can go down to, there's a button near the bottom of the page that says click here to be a sponsor. Click there, learn about how to be a sponsor for the DEF CON Biohacking Village and help them do the work that they are doing to help educate and promote advances in biohacking and medical technology. But before we share this special clip with you, we want to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things, who delivers custom gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com for more information. Now, if you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of the Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us through email at info at dangerousminds.io, and we'll be glad to talk to you about it. Thank you, BJ. All right, so for our first talk, uh, we have Gingerbread coming up to talk about nootropics. Uh, just to let you guys know, um, for this talk, we're gonna hold off questions for Q&A, and we're gonna do it after the talk. If you would like to talk with Gingerbread afterwards, you can, uh, just for the sake of time. And uh, without further ado, welcome Gingerbread. Good morning, everybody. Appreciate you joining me here this early on Sunday. I know after a week of DEF CON, it can be a little bit rough. Uh, I originally prepared this slide deck for 60 minutes. I just found out a few minutes ago that we have a mere 30, so it's going to be a little bit rushed. Please write your questions down, hold them. I'll answer anything you want to know at the end. Um, other than that, we're going to have to get moving here. So, first things first, who the hell is this guy? Well, I'm the gingerbread man. 
I'm an InfoSec researcher and pen tester from Denver. I spend most of my days trying to think up horrible shit to do to people and get the cost down to where it's actually a threat. So I'm one of the very few people that get to, to really love their job and wake up and go, man, I love going to work. It, uh, I've been involved in the nootropic scene for about five, six years now, probably 10 years on an amateur basis, but definitely uh, very much into it for five years or so. Um, I have extensive experience with most of the principal compounds that are involved in the scene, as well as some of the more novel things that are coming out uh, from from researchers who are operating in this space due to the lack of regulation. Um, what I am not, however, is a lawyer, nor am I a doctor. I have no formal training in neurochemistry or law or biology or even information security. So anything I say today, be sure to take it with a grain of salt. <coughs> Do your own research. Don't take my word just because I say something has been tested or something is safe. Just remember throughout the entire talk, you're getting drug tips from Dr. Gonzo, not Dr. Oz. So some first considerations that you really need to look at before you can even begin on this, this area of experimentation is you need to be sure that you have a reputable vendor. Uh, I cannot overstate this. There is a certain implied trust that has become part of the nootropics industry because of the lack of regulation. Now, the vast majority of the compounds that are utilized for nootropics research are not regulated in any way within the United States. And while this means that they are readily available, it also means that there's no regulation from the people providing them. And the vast majority of vendors that you see in the nootropics space are just buying bulk bags of powder, breaking them into smaller units, and shipping them out to their customers wholesale. So, and as anyone who has kept multiple bags of white powder around the house, you realize it can get pretty confusing pretty fast. So, bad chemistry happens. Mix-ups happen. People have been hurt. So, there, there really is an impetus on finding a reputable vendor, verifying that they're a reputable vendor, and the only way you can do that is through anecdotal reports of other customers. And then, uh, being aware of what is expected from a certain compound so that you can know right off the bat this isn't typical. I, I've been exposed to something that's not normal. And it may seem like overkill, but in, in all reality, these are not uh, legitimate vendors. You know, these are individuals who have no scrutiny whatsoever on their business practices. There's no oversight, and they really have no way to verify the identity of the compounds that they think they're providing. It's not that there's any dishonesty or that someone's trying to rip you off. It's that without regulation, we pretty much are at the whim of the Chinese suppliers that are providing everyone with the bulk materials. Uh, the next point I really want to get to is quantify your performance. If you let this stuff just degenerate into, I feel better when I take a scoop of this and a snort of that, that's not science. That's drug use. And that's fun. You know, this is Vegas. It's a good time. But <clears throat> that's not science. And you shouldn't misconstrue that it is. Uh, when I say quantify your performance, I don't just mean keep a journal that says, today I feel better, or damn, I did really good on that test. You need to be able to accurately measure things like attention span, working memory, uh, logical processes, anything you can really accurately get a, a metric for. And fortunately these days, there are actually a lot of tools that allow us to do this fairly accurately. 
things like the quantified self movement have, have been very instrumental in developing these sorts of things. Uh, Cambridge Brain Sciences is another no-cost service that you can use to, to perform a couple dozen different tests, depending on what you want to do that day, you know, any one of them, and you can uh, track your performance. And you can track your performance relative to, of course, what compounds you've used that morning, but also you need to record how much sleep you've had, what you've had to eat over the last week, whether you're menstruating, whether you've had sex recently, whether you've been hit in the head recently. Don't try and, and assume you're going to know what is important. Let future you decide that. Record anything that you can accurately measure and let the data be used later on. And that, that brings us to the next point, maintain good records. Again, a lot of people let this degenerate into I, I feel better or I, I've doubled my dose or what have you. And larger patterns in, in the way you're responding to these drugs can become apparent, but only after you've been keeping good records for some time. Many of these compounds, the racetams in particular, have multiphasic effects that only really become apparent after you've been on the drug for a prolonged period of time. Taking paracetam or oxiracetam for a day is very distinct from being on it for a week, which is itself distinct from a month and itself distinct from a year. And so as, as you begin to continue your experimentation, you will notice different thresholds or plateaus that you reach into and Unless you're keeping good records, you're not going to see that. You're not going to notice trends that happen over a six-month period. It's, it's just not going to happen. And the last one is one that people very rarely actually end up doing, but I can't overemphasize it. Conduct an allergy test. Like, just with the raw amount of experimentation that's happening, there's going to be idiosyncratic reactions. Someone's going to swell up. Someone's going to have a hard time. And you don't want that to be you. So when conducting an allergy test, you really want to take about 10% of the lowest reported dosage for that compound, place it under your tongue, let it sit for about five minutes, swish it around, swallow it down, wait at least a day, maybe two days. Wait at least a day and then see how you respond. Skipping that particular step can be devastating. People in particular... Come on. There we go. People, uh, <clears throat> people have been hurt by compounds that are otherwise considered safe or pharmacologically low active because they had an idiosyncratic reaction. And of course that brings us to the other main concern. Start low and go slow. Many of these compounds can ruin more than just your day with an overestimation. Uh, if you can't handle three to four days of near suicidal depression, if you can't handle going three, four days without sleep, if you can't talk yourself out of the idea that you're the reincarnation of Nikola Tesla and you only have seven hours to get his next invention upon the world, then maybe this isn't the realm of experimentation for you. Mania is a classic response to overdoing it in nootropic circles. So if you're not prepared to handle these types of aberrant mental states, you're going to want to be especially careful. So the first wave of drugs here, we're pretty much just going to skip over here because we just don't have time. But the majority of these compounds first came to the public 
to uh, folks who weren't involved in pharma, uh, pharmaceutical research around 1992-1993. It was uh, the books published by Morgenthaler that really became the coffee table books of smart drugs. The Science Inside holds up pretty well today. Uh, they've, of course, made many, many more discoveries, but there's very little that has been contradicted or, or rendered irrelevant. So we're going to look at this first class of drugs here, the so-called first wave. These are the compounds that most people think of if they think of anything when they're looking at nootropics. Uh, these are the compounds that have been around the longest, that have uh, the most research behind them. And uh, these are definitely the substances that are, that are covered in most of the literature. Now, this first group here, vincamine, nematopine, and vinpocetine, these particular drugs are uh, typical of this class in that they increase blood flow to the brain. Now, there are different mechanisms for these particular drugs. Say, uh, vinpocetine and vincamine have more of an effect on smooth muscle and dilating blood vessels, where nematopine can actually uh, affect systemic blood pressure. It's, uh, it's a drug that they use in emergency rooms for uh, subarachnoid aneurysms. And in fact, in the case of nematopine specifically, it's kind of a heavy-hitting drug, and you really don't see people using it too much these days. Uh, it was fairly popular in the 90s, but just considering it's a prescription-only drug, you really don't see people bothering with it. So again, I'm really sorry we have to go so fast. We have about half time here. Now, hydrogen we're not going to cover too much. Hydrogen is a, uh, a trademarked mixture of ergot alkaloids, not unlike LSD. The potency is very, very similar. We're talking 100, 200 micrograms for an active dose. And Again, it has a very similar effect to the first class. This is principally an effect on blood flow to the brain. And although it seems a bit overly simplistic to say, hey, I get more blood to my brain, I can think better, the anecdotal evidence really does back it up. We, we've shown that time and again, these unrelated compounds that have simmer, similar pharmacological action provide similar cognitive benefits. So the next group here is one of the very popular groups and something you absolutely need to be well-versed in if you're going to experiment with this sort of thing, and that's the choline-type drugs. Now, choline is an absolutely essential uh, precursor for, for neurotransmitters within the brain. Uh, choline is used to produce acetylcholine. It's used to produce uh, cell membranes. It's, uh, it's involved in just processes throughout the body. And acetylcholine, of course, is as important as it is being the principal excitatory neurotransmitter within the brain. It's the, the principal go switch as far as us mammals are concerned. So, <coughs> excuse me. When it comes to the choline-type drugs, it really is a matter of individual metabolisms. Once these drugs have entered your bloodstream and begin to go to work, there isn't that much difference after the fact. So once you find a compound that works for you, once you find one that is uh, adequately affecting the choline levels in your body, you really don't need to start spending more and more money. People that have idiosyncratic metabolic reactions to these sorts of things may have to spend more money and purchase more complicated compounds to get around certain things. There are uh, certain metabolic disorders that when you supplement choline will leave you with this fishy smell that, that never really goes away. And your friends won't tell you, but you'll smell very bad. So the next group here are, they're not as popular as they used to be, 
And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that these drugs cannot be sustained in their action. This particular drug class are typified by B vitamins that have been modified chemically to either allow for greater bioavailability or to allow them to remain in the bloodstream for a longer period of time. Uh, Pygmalion was uh, invented in order to treat nutrient deficiencies in Japan, specifically buri-buri, and they were having problems with people being able to get adequate sources of thiamine, considering their diets were principally based on uh, seafood and rice. So being thiamine deficient and watching an entire country suffer from these same deficiencies, they, they developed a drug that would be much more bioavailable and allow them to treat this deficiency. Well, it turns out that the drug on its own has some fairly potent cognitive effects. And uh, solbutiamine, which is another drug developed in the same class, this is just two B vitamins here connected by a sulfide bond. That drug in particular has been used for psychogenic erectile dysfunction. It's been used for focus and memory, uh, performance enhancing within sports. It's, it's been tested very, very thoroughly. But this particular class of drugs seems to be typified by their short window of action. <clears throat> More than two or three doses within a week's, a week's time, you're not going to notice a profound... Uh, pharmacological action and there's there's various ideas on how that works that perhaps they're treating deficiencies that get corrected perhaps there's you know uh, desensitization of, of the receptor sites but for the most part uh, you aren't going to hear of negative responses there there's very few people who respond poorly to these drugs if they respond at all um, solbutymine in particular was um, used as a daytime sleepiness drug in in the Soviet Union during the 90s. So, uh, good class of drugs. They're pretty cheap. They treat nutrient deficiencies, and, you know, they're, uh, they're pretty effective. So, this next group here, the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, are, are the first class you really have to be careful with. They're not going to kill you if you overshoot the mark, but when you start to when you start to affect the metabolic turnover of certain neurotransmitters and then you affect the rate at which they're broken down, you can very quickly head into some uncharted territory and, and throw your neurochemistry way out of whack. Uh, I'm sure some of you are familiar with the term acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. This is actually the same pharmacological action that nerve agents provide. They inhibit the enzymes that are used to break down acetylcholine. And so your, your muscles get caught in a constant on signal. And so the only way to treat that, of course, is with, uh, with atropine-type drugs and other anticholinergic treatments. But uh, as far as the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors that we'll be dealing with today, uh, the effect is much, much less profound. Huperzine A is an extractive of club moss, uh, Chinese club moss, I can't recall the, the Latin name myself just now, and galantamine has been very popular within not only nootropic circles, but within lucid dreaming circles. Um, both of these compounds have very long action. If you uh, oh, overshoot the mark by, say, 10 to 20% using huperzine or using galantamine, you can ruin your week. You can ruin you know, an entire three days' worth of sleep uh, with a slight miscalculation. Now, Desmopressin is one that you really don't see that much, and it's, it's kind of unfortunate. The pharmacological effects of Desmopressin are very profound. There's uh, 
quite a few anecdotal reports of people using Desmopress in short term to induce a near photographic memory. People, um, not people, Tim Ferriss, the, the famous entrepreneur from this area, uh, famously regales people with the tale of him cramming for a Japanese language study and being able to just shove characters into his head, do excellently on the test, and then four or five hours later, not have any idea how he passed it. And so while it does induce this near photographic memory, it is entirely based on, on the short term. If you want to consolidate these memories into long-term storage, you're going to have to use a different mechanism. You can't just blast something up your nose and, and memorize the dictionary. It's good, though. It's good stuff. Now, select line we're not really going to talk about too much just because a lot of people avoid it. Uh, the drug in particular is a pro-drug for levoamphetamine. And so... Although there aren't legal issues with people obtaining it, there is concern about failing urine tests. Uh, that's just the world we live in. Your pee belongs to your employer. And even if you're taking perfectly legal compounds, if they can't discern that use from drug use, you're fired. So not a lot of people in take selegaline. It's uh, a mild MAO inhibitor. It functions over a long period of time. It's fairly expensive, but if you come across them, it's definitely worth experimenting with. And that brings us to probably the most popular class of nootropic drugs, and that's the racetams. So racetams are what a lot of people who are to the second level in nootropics think of when they think of nootropic compounds. Uh, this particular class of drugs had such a distinct pharmacological action that their inventor felt the need to create a new word to describe this action, and that was nootropics. Dr. Gerjea invented the term meaning to twist the mind or to form the mind. And so Gerjea's criteria for this, this class of drugs was not just that they enhance cognition. We had seen that with amphetamine and studies with caffeine. Enhancing cognition had been well established. What made the racetams distinct was their almost total lack of uh, peripheral and central nervous system effects. Your, your heart isn't beating faster. You've not been stimulated nor sedated. Uh, your smooth muscle isn't affected. These drugs primarily function on the cholinergic systems and in the recycling of glutamate throughout the brain. And so... Their effect, at first, was somewhat mysterious and ephemeral. A lot of researchers even conjectured that the, the racetam effect was entirely placebo. I'm sorry, these drugs don't do anything. And the fact that the dosage window for racetams is so incredibly broad, again, made people very suspicious that there was any action at all. At the time that they were invented, they were referred to as pharmacologically safe drugs. The fact that you can take, you know, 50 times an active dose and not necessarily have that bad of an experience is fairly unique when it comes to these type of psychogenic compounds. Now, for the most part, racetam type drugs are not regulated in the United States. <coughs> Excuse me, guys. Sorry about that. Uh, the only one that I can think of off the top of my head is Kepra, which is Levo... Um, Levitracetam, and that is an anti-epileptic anti drug that's been marketed in the United States for about 40 years. Um, 
most of the racetams do not produce significant anti-epileptic activity, but paracetam, aniracetam, um, coloracetam, these drugs do. And they've actually been investigated for treatment of epilepsy for some time in Europe. There's limited efficacy. Um, they, they really aren't miracle drugs, but considering the wide uh, dosage window, considering the very small instances of side effects, there, there's, there's little reason not to use them as an adjunct. But here in the United States, paracetam is neither a drug nor a food. And that, that's an important distinction that we have to make here in the nootropics realm, is that these particular compounds are unregulated to the point where they can't be marketed as supplements, they can't be marketed as foods. You're essentially buying pure compounds and what you do with it is your own business. And so, you really don't have, <clears throat> you don't have the safety window that you would with other compounds. You're not sure if when you buy paracetam, if you're getting oxiracetam. And so, again, that just brings us back to the first point about know your dealer, know what you're doing. So, this first drug here, paracetam, is the stereotypical smart drug. Uh, invented in 1964, it's very, very popular with people who are, who are experimenting here. And it's characterized by the fact that regular dosing is really needed to bring the effect about. People can take a single dose of paracetam and you know, feel a little bit brighter, a little bit sharper, but almost everyone you speak to who's done extensive experimentation describes a second plateau that they cross with regular usage. Uh, paracetam is sort of the vanilla racetam that doesn't really have any particular uh, pharmacological characteristics other than this glutamate effect that you see. Uh, very much a profound effect on memory, very uh, profound effects on verbal fluidity and on the recall of people speaking. Um, the sensory changes that people describe are often a sharpening of vision or a increase in color saturation or an increase in the ability to discern distances. And it's, it's pretty noticeable. <clears throat> a lot of folks like to refer to it as HDTV vision or uh, the first day you got your glasses suddenly like, oh, wow. And that particular effect becomes a tell that you can use to tell when you're on and when you haven't quite had enough. That particular, you, you develop ways of, of gauging your pharmacological response in sort of a, a handy way. Uh, paracetam, paracetam has a huge dosage window. Some of the early studies showed six to 800 milligrams once per day. Some of the more recent anecdotal reports coming out of the nootropics world have gone as high as 4.8 grams three times a day. Now, I've experimented extensively with paracetam and dosages all over the window, and it very clearly <coughs> displays another effect of the racetams you have to be aware of, and that's the N-shaped dosage curve. Depending on any individual, you will have a peak spot where you will have the most response to your racetam type drugs. And adding more after that point will diminish the effects. It's not just that you won't get any more. It's not just uh, diminishing returns. You will actually bring yourself down. And so a way to know if you've entered into that effect is you're like, God, this, this just isn't working anymore. I don't feel sharp. What's going on? What's the deal here? You stop, you skip a day, and the next day, suddenly you're back on. Suddenly you're like, oh, there it is. Okay. That's a sign you're getting too much. 
Back it off. Let your brain adjust. <coughs> Paracetam is probably the most popular one out of all these types of drugs, and it is definitely the most popular one when it comes to chronic administration. Highly, highly recommend it. Now, this next one here, oxiracetam, is actually my personal favorite. Oxiracetam is an incredible compound. It was uh, developed shortly after paracetam as a way of trying to increase the potency. Nobody wanted to eat five grams of powder each time they took a dose. And oxiracetam has much less of a holistic uh, enhancement effect. You absolutely see a predisposition toward logic, toward science, toward coding, and you almost see that to the detriment of other areas of your personality. There have been multiple occasions where I've been on a racetam bender, doing a bunch of studying or, or uh, elucidating new areas of study, and have my wife say, you know, you haven't been paying attention, you don't even care, you hurt my feelings and didn't even notice, and it doesn't even seem important. You've, you've completely distanced yourself from that sort of emotional gratification. Uh, oxiracetam in particular, too, is one of the easier compounds to discern whether or not you have a good batch because uh, the isometric changes that happen with the uh, drug itself affect its taste. And only one of the oxiracetams, oxiracetam A, produces this so sweet it could sweeten your coffee, artificial sweetener taste. So the half-life of oxiracetam is about eight hours which really lends itself to twice-a-day chronic administration. Uh, there are folks who will give you anecdotal reports of having consumed oxiracetam from periods of time measured in years. And so there's, there's a lot of evidence that it can be sustained over the long term without diminishing effects, without you know, uh, causing neurological issues. Uh, oxiracetam in particular is water-soluble. Most of the racetams are until you start getting into larger and larger functional groups on the sides of the molecule. Um, the dosage for oxiracetam, though, is at most about half of what you're going to see with pyracetam. Uh, the average dose you're going to see is about four to 800 milligrams per day, once to three times a day, and any more than that, and you really do get into diminishing returns. So they're cutting me off. That's about all we could cover. I'm sorry about that. I'll, uh, I will be available for the rest of the weekend here if anybody wants to come talk to me. And... I have like 50 other compounds I could talk about. So if anybody has any experience, feel free to come ask me. There's, there's lots and lots and lots we could discuss. So thank you guys. Special thanks to the team at DEF CON Biohacking Village for sharing this recording with us. Remember, if you're able to make it out to Las Vegas, Nevada for DEF CON in August of this year, it will be well worth the trip, but the panels, the topics, are just a small portion of the action. With the activities and the networking available, uh, with the other attendees, it's the true payoff. So, our Laura listeners, if you would like to know more about this journey we take, please check out our homepage at dangerousminds.io or go to facebook.com forward slash dangerousmindspodcast. Keep in mind, Events like these are listed on the DMP Google Calendar. If you have an event that you would like to add to it, please email us at info at dangerousminds.io. We'll be glad to add it to the calendar and share it with the community. Now, all of us here want to thank you for joining us as we explore further the tech and the people behind it within this vastly growing community of 
biohacking, grinding, and implantable technology today. If you like the programming that we share and the work that we're doing in the community, please support us by going to our Patreon page and becoming a sponsor at www.patreon.com forward slash dangerous minds. And please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments. And perhaps one day we might talk to you about the work and or projects you're exploring and developing. Until next time, seek this spark. Scientific progression is steamrolling, there's no preventing it going ahead. Now we're intrinsically linked with technology, biology as we know it is dead.